Chelsea Fairless. Ooh, that's a sexy voice. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Come on. Are Give you me- gonna have are you gonna have sex dreams about me surrounded <laughs> by lush American beauty roses? <laughs> Yeah, the uh, the American Beauty influence on this episode is very heavily seen and felt. It's very pronounced, and I actually didn't even really ever consciously think about it before we watched this episode. Anyway, let's back it up. Yeah, we are. We're getting way too ahead of ourselves, as usual. We are talking about the Sex and the City episode, What Goes Around Comes Around. About the famed vintage store. No. <laughs> about, like, the highway robbery of them charging... <laughs> Like $500 for a ratchet pair of Levi cutoffs. Uh, Do you want to buy an $800 Aerosmith tee? That's our Tindler Swindler doc, Vintage Swindler. Look, I believe that some vintage is quite valuable and should be priced accordingly. But I also think that the cottage industry of band tee vintage sellers is disturbing and (laughs) gross. Anyway. Future Patreon episode, (laughs) I guess. No, future Patriot episode is me ranking like my favorite to least favorite kinds of vintage stores. My least favorite being the ones that are also like Halloween costume shops. You know what I mean. I do. (laughs) Okay, so we're talking about season three, the penultimate episode, episode 17, which is all about karma. Did Carrie fuck up herself and give herself bad karma? Yes, Uh, So this episode begins outside of the city at the McDougal family compound, which has the worst vibes imaginable. Also, is it in Connecticut? I don't know, but you couldn't pay me to go there. I should say that this episode was written by Darren Starr. It is Darren Starr's last written episode for Sex and the City. Hmm. I'm going to be dropping in IMDb (laughs) trivia all throughout this episode. Yeah, this sounds like a woman that's fallen down an IMDb rabbit hole. Always. I never left. Yeah, this is a bunny-heavy episode. Yeah, I almost got confused. I'm like, is this the episode where Bunny bays Trey? But that's a different That's episode. a different one. Can you believe that the original storyline for Trey was that he was just going to be ungodly boring? And then they cast Kyle McLaughlin and they were like, well, we can't do that because he's the most charismatic human being ever. So I guess his dick doesn't work. Eh. He's still pretty boring. He's just boring and his dick doesn't work. Yeah. Anyway, so it's very bougie, very waspy. But thankfully, there's one hot working class person in the mix, which is the gardener. Of course. I love horny Charlotte. And we've talked about for And Just Like That what storylines they could have given Charlotte. And I think we need to bring back horny Charlotte. I agree. Well, she was kind of an And Just Like That. We just didn't really get that much of it. Well, she's getting that good hair. Because her buzzkill of a daughter just happened to barge in at the wrong time. Yeah, she's getting that good hairy dick. They really do not connect enough the fact that Charlotte married her divorce attorney. It's true. We, We like to glaze over that. So then we immediately cut back to a sushi lunch. Look at these women able to take conservatively two hours off from work to have a full lunch. Yeah, Samantha has a really good line in this scene, which is, what's the point of being in the suburbs if you're not going to fuck a gardener? Which, sound point. 
Yeah, well, Desperate Housewives took that storyline to heart. Yeah, they did. Carrie sees Natasha at the sushi restaurant. I just want to say that Natasha in this slinky lavender dress is just how I want to dress always. I know. it's She looks incredible. It feels like Tom Ford for Gucci or Calvin Klein-esque or something like that. It is the epitome of 90s minimalism. She is very much the Carolyn Bissett in this situation, who I feel like had to be a reference point for Natasha, right? Oh, absolutely. And Chelsea, did you notice that this is the first time Natasha is seen not in white? Ooh. She also has a really hot friend with her. Always. So Natasha sees the girls and is, of course, horrified and runs out. Fair enough. Yeah. And Carrie wonders if her karma is off. (laughs) Did I do something to make things awkward, Natasha? (laughs) Also, I love that I forget if it's Miranda or Samantha who's like, did you see how her friend was looking at us? They're like, look, Carrie, it's fine that you cheated, but like, we really can't handle the... (laughs) The downward shame that's now upon us. Is that where she's like, I can't believe there's someone in New York that hates me that much. I wrote down this line too. And I was like, I have just always assumed that there's someone in this world that really fucking hates me. But I don't know who it is. It's the one star podcast reviewers. (laughs) Um, Anyway, this episode is famous because Carrie gets mugged. The mugging scene is brilliant. I also love that she says just when the city was getting safe. A great line. I was getting mugged. Yeah, I was thinking about, because if you are a Daily Mail compulsive reader as I am, what the Daily Mail headline for this would be. And I imagine it's like, Sexpert gets Blahnik stolen. (laughs) (laughs) It does owe a debt to Amy Heckerling and the film Clueless, who also wrote a similar scene where the person getting mugged is also educating the mugger about fashion. Yeah. He's like, give me your bag. And she's like, it's a baguette or whatever. Yeah. And it's a sort of, it's a reverse of the Clueless scene as well, where he knows what Manolo Blahniks are when the robber in Clueless doesn't know who Aliyah is. I love that in the world that they created for Sex in the City, these sort of blue collar criminals can recognize a designer shoe. But like, what's he going to do with like a worn Manolo Blahnik sandal? Like, go sell it at Ina? Like... Yeah, especially in a world where Depop doesn't exist yet. (laughs) Yeah, it's not like you can just unload stuff online easily like you can now. It's like he'd have to take those shoes to Tokyo 7 or something. I would have loved if in the next episode Carrie passed by someone that was selling like scripts and then a worn pair of Manolo Blahniks, size seven and a half Manolo Blahniks. I mean, a fairly light mugging. It could have gone worse. Yeah, it wasn't scary. Even the mugging in Clueless felt a little more sinister, although that's maybe because it was at night. Not to harp on in just like that, but Carrie does get this purple baguette back somehow in the the (laughs) latest series. Yeah, we have to assume that she bought it on the real reel or something. Or bought it on ThreadUp, our Instagram sponsor. We're not doing Spawn. So Carrie barges into a random hair salon dramatically and screams, I've been robbed, which I would probably do too, and no one would care. Yeah. It's a comedic moment, but I think I would be like, does anyone have a phone? Yeah. 
This is a time where you still had to memorize people's numbers. Like the only numbers I have me- memorized at this point is my parents' home phone number, which hasn't changed since I was a child. Yeah, but apparently she has Miranda's phone number memorized because... Because it's the year 2000. You had to. <laughs> it's true. Yeah, you even had like little um, address books. Remember those? Yeah, Rolodexes. You... <laughs> yeah. No, but like the little ones you carry around with you. And my, stuff. Yeah, my mom still does. I think maybe we should do that for each other just in case something like this happens. Yeah, I have no idea what your phone number is. Exactly. Or I should just get like a memento text <laughs> to be like Chelsea's number. God forbid you get a new one. <laughs> so anyway, Miranda arrives with an ugly pair of shoes, which she had laying around at the office. I think these are the white shoes she wears in that Sex and the City 2 flashback of Miranda in the 80s. Well, she's not wearing them. They're just poking out of her Barnes and Noble tote bag. She's wearing Reeboks. That's like the whole gag. Like Right. Miranda's like a working woman of the 80s and has these trashy white pumps. But in the reality of the series, you would imagine Carrie calls Miranda, who has probably just gotten back to the law office, is sitting down with the brief and is like, you have to bring me shoes. So I imagine that these are, because they don't fit Carrie's feet, that they're just white pumps that Miranda had laying around in the office for emergencies. Yeah, but Miranda hits it off with the cop. Who looks like a guy that Samantha would fuck. Yeah, he does. And this is where she reveals that her hair is dyed red. Well, he's like, you have beautiful red hair. And she's like, anyone could be a redhead with a good color. So I don't think that necessarily means that she's not a natural redhead. Oh. It's like anyone could be a redhead. Although you could interpret that way. It's it's kind of ambiguous. Well, her hair does go from like a, this deeper crimson red, which I enjoy, to like lighter shades of reds in different seasons. So. Oh, yeah. Her, red, her hair is clearly dyed, especially in this episode. It is like shockingly red. Anyway. He gets her number or she gives him her card or something. Yes, in case in case they find this man and they're Manolo Blahnik. So Miranda's storyline as vis-a-vis karma is that maybe that this guy is good karma for meeting so many bizarre guys over the years. Yeah. And then Samantha keeps getting messages for a Sam Jones. Voicemails. Voicemails, which again, this must be the year 2000 because I guess these people are going through the phone book and Samantha's name is in the phone book. Yeah, so she's getting a lot of voicemails about this party. She finally picks up the phone and is like, where's this fabulous party? Which again, I won't, I will try not to be too nitpicky, but wouldn't you be like, oh, it's at Coulter Hall, the NYU dorm. Like, does someone just give the straight address? Yeah, but like, come on, we got to suspend our disbelief. This is sex in the city. This is not end just like that. So Samantha and Carrie walk to the Sam Jones party. A lovely walking scene. Yeah, great walk and talk. Carrie's wearing a giant butterfly belt. Samantha reveals that Big and Natasha are O-V-E-R. Wait, this is my favorite. Natasha left big. They're getting a divorce. She's back at Ralph Lauren. Can you just get your job back? Okay, also, like, how embarrassing. You quit your job just because you married a real estate guy, and now you have to, like, go back and beg for your job? That's like a fashion girl's worst nightmare. And remember, at this point, she's 26, maybe? Yeah. Sad. It is sad. Carrie acts incredibly shocked. And it's like, did Carrie think that they that his affair would bring them closer together? Yeah. Well, you know, she didn't know. You know, she was in the dark. So the I couldn't help but wonder in this episode, is 
very long. It's a lot of questions. I'll just go ahead and, and read them now. I wondered, does a string of bad dates really equal a good one? And will treating someone badly in one relationship ensure that you'll be treated badly in the next? Does everything that go around really come around? And if so, will it come around to bite you in the ass? Is there such a thing as relationship karma? That's like 10 questions, but they all say exactly the same thing, basically. Which is if you are sh- if you do something shitty in one relationship uh, well, or to cause the end of another relationship, will that come back? Well, let's go through it point by point. So the first one is, does a string of bad dates really equal a good one? I would argue no. No, this isn't. This There's is, no guarantees in life. This isn't like when two attractive people make an ugly baby. No. <laughs> But I do think that in order to meet a compatible partner, you have to constantly meet new people, not necessarily people that you're romantically interested in, but but fresh faces. And then the, will treating someone badly in one relationship ensure that you'll be treated badly in the next? I mean, what do you think? I mean, I hope so. I mean, not for me. I've never treated anyone badly. But for people who've treated me badly, yes, I would like to, <laughs> I would like for it to bite them in the ass in the next relationship. See, I don't believe in karma necessarily because there are so many terrible people in the world that are thriving right now, but I do believe that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So I think that things do have a way of coming back to bite you in the ass for sure. Yeah, I mean, in reality, someone treating you badly of course, has to do with them. Not in the world of Carrie, because Carrie somehow the next season gets Aiden back, which we do need to do that episode. <laughs> it's true. But is there such a thing as relationship karma? See, I don't think it's karma so much as a toxic dating pattern that you choose to repeat. Like, I don't think that Khloe Kardashian's fucked up love life is a result of karma. I think she's choosing to date a certain genre of person who loves to play basketball and cheat on her, and she's repeating that. I definitely think it's a pattern that she has and she's repeating it, and quite honestly, like, she should just stop everything and go to therapy four days a week and really unwind this. But also, I think at a certain point, that's just kind of the luck that you have, and in a way, just, like, energy-wise, you you are also bringing that into your life. Oh, totally. Clearly, she's giving out that vibe. It's really hard for people to even identify their patterns, let alone break them, even if it's completely obvious to everyone around them. It's just, it's tough. What's Carrie's pattern? Unavailable men? I guess. I mean, that's what she's always complaining about, except for then she got Aiden and he wasn't like that at all. And then it wasn't fun for her. Yeah. See, I don't know if you've read the book Attached, Chelsea, but those of us who are anxiously attached often (laughs) attract avoidant partners. But then when we find emotionally available people, we are the ones who become avoidant. You see this pattern because that's So you have have an anxious attachment style? Oh, absolutely. Oh, okay. Don't leave me, okay, Chelsea? (laughs) I'm learning all kinds of shit. (sighs) So they go to the party. (laughs) Yeah, They get to the dorm, and somehow, in a scene we don't see, Samantha has convinced Carrie to enter the dormitory, sign in, go up the elevator with a bunch of sweaty 19-year-olds. Oh, yeah, I forgot. You always have to sign in at the dorm. (sighs) I guess Samantha's reasoning is like, let me just tell this kid to stop having his friends call me. Yeah. And let me just say, the other Sam Jones, not hot, not fuckable, has the intellectual capacity of a apple 
So this is the actor Jacob Pitts, who plays Sam Jones. He would later go on to play Tim Gutterson on five seasons of Justified, which starred Timothy Oliphant, who played the 20-something-year-old guy that Carrie fucks in season one. Wow. All roads lead back to sex <laughs> in the city, baby. So she's basically just like, fuck off. I, well, what is he supposed to do? Like, to stop the calls from coming? Well, they're obviously looking at the phone book and finding Samantha, Samantha Jones. Anyway, they leave the shitty party and some drunk guys knock Carrie over. And she's like, is it karma? It's like, no, bitch, you're at an NYU dorm party. You're lucky you didn't get like bullied into playing beer pong. Well, I yes, I think the visual symmetry is that Natasha fell down the stairs and now she's falling down the stairs. Yeah, but Natasha's fall was like 10 times worse and more humiliating. Well, as we'll learn later, we'll we'll understand the full extent of that fall. Anyway, so Carrie's like this is my relationship karma. Again, I don't know if I believe in that, but I do believe as a former New Yorker, there are days when you and the city are fundamentally out of alignment. Do you know what I mean? I feel that way about Los Angeles. <laughs> well, you know those days where it's like you just barely miss like every single train, like you run into the worst person at the absolute worst time, like every the city like conspires against you basically. But then on other days, the city loves you and you just hop on every train and you see your favorite celebrity shopping at the Union Square Farmers Market and, you know. So you're saying it's just one of those days when you don't want to wake up, everything's fucked. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> sucks you really don't want to know why but you want to break stuff uh, this, is, this is where samantha is telling her that karma is bullshit and samantha's like what is my karma to de-virginize this sam jones which it's like no and then carrie's like that's not karma that's statutory rape which I wonder if Sam's storyline in Sex in the City 3 was would have been to de-virginize Brady. Because you want to talk about a legit reason for all the girls to have a falling out with Samantha that would necessitate a move to another country? <laughs> yeah, you're right. It, w- it would be fucking little Brady. <laughs> little 17-year-old Brady, <laughs> which is technically the age of consent in New York. But, like, he's super horned up in the series, and that was going to be, at least what we understand, the partially the storyline in Sex and the City 3. He was going to send dick pics to Samantha by accident. Which is now a crime in several states. <laughs> Brady gets charged with CP. Oh, yeah. Brady's like has to be on the sex offenders registry. <laughs> and Miranda has to represent him. The people versus Brady hugs Brady. <laughs> uh, whatever it takes to throw Brady in jail and get him off the show and stop him from ruining Miranda's life, which he's clearly been doing since the beginning. Okay, we're not talking about it just like that. Let's let's hop back into Connecticut where Charlotte is having a sex dream. Yeah, so as we discussed in the beginning of this episode, there are many references to American beauty, but I think the most distinct reference in these scenes with the gardener is the films of Douglas Sirk, specifically All That Heaven Allows, where Rock Hudson plays a very sexy gardener. And it has the same sort of stylized technicolor quality. Yes, and if us referencing American Beauty makes you want to watch American Beauty and you've never watched the film before, I had to show a few (laughs) years ago our friend Whitney the film and I had to explain to her, I was like, you need to understand, and this was post-canceling of Kevin Spacey, I was like, you need to understand they're going to (laughs) make Kevin Spacey the hero of this film, but it is Annette Bening. (laughs) 
It is. Well, American Beauty also falls within our favorite genre of women of a certain age having nervous breakdowns in beautiful houses. Like, And if we didn't have American Beauty, we wouldn't have Six Feet Under because uh, Alan Ball wrote American Beauty, won the Oscar for it, and then that gave him the opportunity to create whatever he wanted to. And he was like, Six Feet Under, baby. Who did Annette Bening lose the Best Actress Oscar oh, to? This is also egregious because she was heavily pregnant and then Warren Beatty that same year had gotten oh no 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 wait it would be year 2000 hold on yeah so American Beauty came out like 99 a year like when they were filming when they were writing this clearly if it came out in 2000 they wrote it in 99 probably oh you know who won the Oscar Hmm. Hillary Swank for Boys Don't Cry okay sure fair enough she was amazing Look, we gotta first. We gotta get Glenn Close her Oscar, and then Annette Bening. Well, Annette Bening also deserved it for the kids are all right, but lost to I forget who. I think it was Natalie Portman in Black Swan, which which actually fair. Who was the original Julia Fox? Who was heavily (laughs) pregnant at the time as well. Anyway, this has nothing to do what we're talking about. Uh, I find this such a movie TV. TV conception, which is partners thinking that their significant other having a sex dream is a nightmare, and then waking them up and they're like, you're having a nightmare. (laughs) Have you ever had a sex dream? Of course, but I don't really remember my dreams. I've definitely never had a sex dream like this that, you know. Is it Douglas Sirk? Yeah, yeah, I've I've never had a Douglas Sirk sex dream, but I wish. (laughs) The only sex dream I remember having, and I was in high school... And it's like the dream was happening. I was having sex. And then I looked up and it was Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) No. (laughs) Really? Yes. Wait, how old were you? I don't know, like 17. So what era of Quentin Tarantino was fucking you is what I need to know. Um, I think when he did a couple episodes of Alias. (laughs) (laughs) Like Kill Bill era. Okay. You know, pre-grind Could have been better, could have been worse. So I forget that Charlotte actually makes out with the gardener. I yeah. did think it was just the fantasy sequence. I mean, it is very sensual how he tends to those roses. How he tends to her garden. <laughs> Who can blame her? Uh, could you vibe in a wasp household, Chell? Because I don't think I could. No, of course not. And thank God I wasn't born into one. What a nightmare. Also, you know, as pre-established, we hate a narc. So like, fuck this sister-in-law. Fuck this sister-in-law. <laughs> And her, ooh, her little face, I just... <laughs> her I little bird face. I don't like it. I don't like it. I mean, the highlight of this scene is Bunny, Bunny putting the cigarette in the wrong way. Did you notice that? Mm-hmm. It's giving uh, Goldie Hawn in the first Wives Club energy. I mean, I think the coolest thing about Bunny is that she is an alcoholic, apparently, which we only really see in this episode. And I love that... No, I was making a face of like, she's... We definitely get the sense Bunny likes a drink. Well, I love that when the daughter narks on Charlotte for kissing the gardener, Bunny like is like, you're a McDougal now. Like she doesn't give a shit, which seems very out of character. But I guess she's just had enough gimlets or whatever wasps drink. Martinis? Yeah, I guess so. I, I Yeah, you're led to believe in this episode that everyone lives secret lives, which is the first time Charlotte's getting the sense. Although I always forget and when i watch the show in real time when i was a teenager i was like i guess people just like date and get married within a month yeah well sometimes that's what happens spoken like a true lesbian yeah but also pam and tommy (laughs) that worked out so well 
Sam Jones comes to Samantha's apartment, which somehow he has the address to, but fine. You know, NYU and me packing, not too far away. He has a single red rose to bring it back to the the rose through line of this episode. Does he kind of rape her? Because he throws her down on the bed. Yeah, and then she's just kind of like, fuck it. I mean, that is a genre of sex that exists. Uh, Certainly. I mean, not... uh... That's probably like most... (laughs) most sex certainly in the mcdougall household it sounds (laughs) like yeah um remember when sex could be funny without the use of a prosthetic cock chelsea i know although i do think that this sex scene the way that it's shot is very bizarre and it kind of reminds me of like a carnival sequence from like a 90s alternative music video (laughs) But yeah, this is not hot. It it actually upsets me because he doesn't deserve to fuck Samantha, so it kind of grosses me out. And she's trying to teach him to be a good lover, but I don't think she succeeds. No. But he's in love with her. Well, she's not putting in the effort that she put in with Smith Jared. Well. She's not. She's not teaching him anything. She's just like, I guess I'm just going to lie back and take it. No, no, no. I get it. But that's like, you know, turnips to pineapples. <laughs> Very different grade of men. So Miranda is on her date. Yeah, we we haven't really dug into Miranda's storyline, but she has a lot of anxiety. Speaking of another anxiously attached human, that he's just so attractive. Right. Which he's he's fine. Like he's in the, the genre of like an Elliot Stabler. Again, he's someone that looks like Samantha would fuck. But yeah. So first he picks her up at her apartment, but she has some sort of a outfit meltdown. Which I always like to see this portrayed on TV or film because it's so, it is real. But I would never have an outfit meltdown if there was someone literally standing in my foyer in a pre-cell phone time. Like, what? Also, it's like, just wear a black dress. Just wear a short black dress. They go on the date and Miranda starts to feel insecure because she can sense that other women in the, the restaurant are checking out her date. Which, that just makes me feel hotter, personally. Also, the people they cut to, I'm like, Cynthia Nixon is definitely hotter than these people. Oh, yeah. The only way that she can cope is to get incredibly drunk. And then they have sex. There is a cut scene that we know about because when we did a fundraiser with Cynthia Nixon in 2018, we asked her about the eating cake out of the garbage scene, and then she told us about another scene that was just too crazy that Michael Patrick cut, which was they evidently shot a sex scene between the two of them in which Miranda vomits on this cop while they're having sex. Yeah, and in true Miranda fashion, she's on top. And I guess the scene was shot in profile, right? So you could see a shadow on the wall and then basically her... Yeah, she had a tube in the side of her mouth. Yeah, and she vomited on him. And then Michael Patrick King was apparently like... No. We're never going to be able to go back from this. Oh, yeah, no 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 one will look at Miranda (laughs) the same way if we go here. (laughs) I mean, I I think it's hilarious. But then they let Carrie vomit. And it's fine. Well, I I think the line is vomiting on someone. Also, this is the other American Beauty reference, which is Miranda, before she pushes the cop in the bedroom, goes, I'm no Mina Suvari, but I'm great in bed. The delivery of that line is perfect. So the next day, Miranda wakes up with the worst hangover of her life. Always hilarious. And her date has left her a note with a referral to her local AA chapter, which seems 
pretty inappropriate. Is it less inappropriate if you knew that Miranda vomited on him the night before? Well, there's that. But <laughs> I feel like getting too drunk on a first date is kind of normal behavior in New York. Not in the world of Sex and the City, as we're learning, because Carrie doesn't want to talk to the teacher again because they both vomited on a date. So this is something within the writer's room they have very specific feelings on. True. What happens next? Trey shirtless playing tennis. Oh, yeah. We did a post about this early on in the account history where he was giving us like Patrick Bateman vibes. Yeah, the Patrick Bateman definitely jumped out in this scene. There's nothing scarier than a preppy man who's angry because you just don't know what they're capable of. But Trey is just, you know, playing tennis by himself in the middle of the night. As oiled as you up. Do. He's hot. He's unbelievably hot. And yeah. it's the more you see Kyle McLaughlin, especially this era, Kyle McLaughlin shirtless, you can understand Charlotte's frustration, right? As she puts it, he's gorgeous. Yeah. But she asks him for a separation, which is fair because even though Trey can't get it up, he's making no outside effort to sexually satisfy his wife. Yeah, he is. He's offering her a cuck marriage, a marriage where Charlotte can fuck the gardener and he watches. He doesn't say that last part. I'm adding that. But... <laughs> I mean, that would be pretty hot, but <sighs> no one has the confidence to do this in a show. No. Also, it's like, why can't he just like give her the full Che Diaz kitchen scene <laughs> vibe or go down on her like once? I don't think Wasps would do that. They just drink gimlets and watch <laughs> the cardinal fuck their wife. <laughs> so yeah, Charlotte's like, I'm out. Yeah. You know, the other Sam Jones is obsessed with Samantha Jones. Fine. Look, I, after what we just went through with and just like that, it was so nice to go back to an episode with a theme that goes over each character. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be perfect with each one, but I appreciate the effort because it's hard. And I also understand why Michael Patrick King for the films in the new series was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's too much work. Yeah. Although Charlotte and Miranda didn't really have karma centric plot lines. It was just Samantha and Carrie. Yeah, I guess Miranda has a line that it's like, is this my karma for dating so many strange men that like the universe has delivered me a hot guy finally? Right, okay. And then I guess Charlotte's karma, which they don't explicitly say, but it is her Faustian bargain was I really want to get married this year. At the start of season three, she's like, I'm getting married. Yeah. It doesn't matter to whom. I'm just getting married. And this is what happens. Right. You gotta drive that car around the block before you buy you do and then of course we have the infamous carrie and natasha sit down scene which evidently sarah jessica parker doesn't remember <laughs> if you've watched the documentary if you've watched the end just like that doc yeah <laughs> which sucks for bridget moynihan because that's her biggest acting moment on the show well, let us not forget that Bridget Moynihan had an amazing 2000 because she's Natasha in this and she's in Coyote Ugly. <laughs> Before we get into the scene as a whole, we need to talk about the newspaper dress and its very sordid history. It does have a very sordid history. So the story of this dress begins in the 20s with the eccentric Italian heiress Marchesa Casati, who at the time was deeply in debt. She was a raging alcoholic and she apparently fashioned a piece of newspaper into a scarf. 
1935, Elsa Scaparelli debuts her famous newsprint textile, which may have been a reference to Marquesa, although in her autobiography she cites fishwives wearing newspaper hats as her inspiration. The genius thing about that print is that she made it with her own press clippings. Like, what a girl boss. (laughs) So now let's fast forward to the year 2000. John Galliano debuts the Christian Dior daily newspaper print in his hobo chic couture collection for Dior, which was inspired by everything that we just mentioned, as well as unhoused people that he observed on the streets of Paris. Yikes. Yes, this collection was literally inspired by people who used newspapers to keep from freezing at night. It's pretty fucked up. He was also inspired by tramp balls, which were lavish 1920s, 30s era parties where the rich dressed up like poor people for fun. Sounds like fun. (laughs) It's all very dark and Galliano certainly got his fair share of criticism for obvious reasons, but... Ultimately, the collection was incredible. I'm sorry, but facts are facts. Is it problematic? Yes. Did I want the slash gown that Courtney Love wore to the Golden Globes? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's also worth mentioning that this collection was parodied quite successfully, might I add, in the film Zoolander. Yes, that would be Magatu's <laughs> derelict collection. But to bring it back, the Dior Daily print was so major that Galliano included it in the next Ready to Wear collection, and that was when Carrie's dress was born. So if you thought that Carrie was a rude bitch for ruining Natasha's marriage and lunch. Now you know that she's also a problematic bitch for wearing this dress. But fuck it, who cares? It's amazing. In case you forgot, your husband wanted to fuck me over you because of this tight little body. Yes, this is is straight off the runway. Anyway, forgive me. Bye. We don't need to go into the scene. That's essentially what happens. I will say that both of these women have extremely toned backs. Like, the backs in this scene are just stunning. The backs and the tans. Yeah. The back tans. These are hot, hot women. And and I love how fashion is used to draw a contrast between these two women, even with their necklaces, right? Like, Natasha has a single strand of pearls, and Carrie has her Carrie necklace that she got at the flea market. And she's got that cuckoo curly hair. Mm-hmm. Peak cuckoo curly Okay, question for you. Do you think Carrie ruined Big's marriage? No. I, she accelerated the demise, but earlier in the season when they're at Aiden's furniture show, Big explains to her that it's not working out. Yeah. And he wants out. Yeah, he thought he wanted something that he didn't actually want. Do you think that the affair is chronicled in Carrie's column? Like, is it in real time? Did she save it for her book? The no, first book? no, it's not. It's Manhattan, not. perhaps? It's not. I wish it was, but could you, you ima- can't really cop to that. No. Could you imagine Natasha sending her intern to, like, read the newspaper? <laughs> we didn't get into the fact that also a runner throughout this episode is that Carrie has been trying to call Natasha's office and has had to. What leads up to this scene is she can't get through to her on the phone. And unlike in the end, just like that episode, she's like, well, I'm not going to show up at her work. I will just have Samantha's assistant pump Natasha's assistant for where she's having lunch. And thankfully, Natasha gets there seven minutes early before lunch, before her guest shows up. Yeah. Carrie loves to demand forgiveness from people. It's like, hey, everyone's on their own journey. Like, you really cannot expect to be forgiven for this right now, like a month after it happens. Also, I do find it quite aggressive that she comes in braless and then (laughs) takes a sip of Natasha's wine, which sharing beverages is reserved for close friends and lovers. Like, (laughs) can we share drinks? We could, but we don't. We don't even do that. So Natasha's speech... Wait. 
I'm sorry, too. You are? Yes, I'm... sorry about it all. I'm sorry he moved to Paris and fell in love with me. I'm sorry that we ever got married. I'm sorry he cheated on me with you, and I'm sorry that I pretended to ignore it for as long as I did. I'm sorry I found you in my apartment, fell down the stairs and broke my tooth. I'm very sorry that after much painful dental surgery, this tooth is still a different color than this tooth. Finally, I'm sorry that you felt the need to come down here. Now, not only have you ruined my marriage, you've ruined my lunch. It's a perfect monologue. It's perfectly written. I love how you can see Carrie visibly wince when she talks about her tooth being a different color. How can Sarah Jessica Parker forget that this scene happened? <laughs> I know. And then the punchline is perfect. You've not only ruined my marriage, you've ruined my lunch. Yeah. Lauren, I'm sorry that we ever started this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Not only did you ruin this episode, but you ruined my iced oat milk latte. (laughs) As you take more sips. I didn't realize until rewatching this episode now that she cops to the fact that I'm sorry that I ignored the fact that you guys were having an affair for as long as I did. Which is like, ooh, okay. They're not yeah. as slick as uh, as they thought they were. Well, maybe she thought he was having an affair, but didn't realize it was with Carrie. Carrie should have been like, well, I'm sorry you quit your job because you married some real estate guy. Ooh. <laughs> so this is why I find the return of Bridget Moynihan and that storyline, that episode, so unsatisfying because this was such a great moment Because it doesn't give Carrie the out. I mean, it is purely psychotic that Carrie wants forgiveness immediately, but we'll see this again with the you have to forgive me monologue in front of Aiden the next season. But it gives Carrie the lumps that she rightly deserves. And then to like fast forward 20 years and have Carrie stalk her even more hardcore than this instance for Natasha to to give her the out. Oh, well, he was always in love with you. so, So everything's fine. Yeah. It's like, I mean, she did a shitty thing. Yeah. I mean, Carrie is in the 0.001% of people that end up with the guy that they shouldn't probably end up with, who is not worth their time. I don't know. I think it happens more often than that. Oh, sorry. 1%. Although we were robbed of that of a scene in the first Sex in the City of just an insert shot of, of Natasha going through the Vogue with Carrie's marriage in it. Also, no backlash on Enid for letting that piece run. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely had the, the Dion Arbus quality <laughs> after, she was, subtext. after she was jilted. Okay, so you read the I Couldn't Help But Wonder, but Carrie's ending VO is equally insane. Yeah, it also, we get a really major slow motion moment. I could watch like 10 hours of this. <laughs> For sure. She says, my actions had set into motion a karmic chain of events that put Natasha back on the singles market as if single women in New York didn't have it hard enough. Is she trying to say that Natasha is is so beautiful that she's fucking up the dating curve? Yes. But like, why do you care, Carrie? What is she going to get your next boyfriend? Well... So we did have a couple of calls about this episode. We're playing them at the end because it kind of makes sense. 
makes more sense. Does it? We also just forgot to play them. (laughs) There's also that. (laughs) In the beginning of this episode. But anyway, let's get into this caller. Hey, it's Chris from New York. Just watched What Goes Around Comes Around. Some thoughts on this episode. Coulter Hall, the dorm that they go into, named after the episode director, Alan Coulter. And the last thing I was noticing was as Carrie and Samantha are walking to the dorm, uh, just a continuity error error but um the same background actor walks behind them like three different times but beyond that um the only other question i had is when samantha is talking to the other sam jones she says we have the same name same exchange and what the fuck is an exchange is that a telephone number i was very much alive in 1999 or 2000 when this was shot and i don't know what an exchange is so many good points. I meant to bring up that Samantha says we have the same exchange because I had the very same question. Yeah, what's an exchange? Is that some like 80s club lingo we don't know for exchanging telephone numbers? I have no idea. And then, yeah, I did not notice that the same background actor walked by them several times. And they are very prominent, might I say. And then there's one more call that's more of a, a general point that we also noticed. Hi, guys. Big fan of the podcast. Big fan of both of you. I'm actually rewatching season three of Sex and the City right now, and I was just wondering, have you guys ever noticed that Carrie is particularly hot this season? Like, something just looks a little bit different with her hair, her face. I don't know, but she looks super good. I was just wondering if you guys could speak on that or if you have any insight on that. So what is the true nature of Carrie's hotness? I mean, we align... Sex in the City's kind of best stylistic seasons is, is really 3-4. But also, to me, I think peak Carrie hotness would be season two shortcomings when she leaves uh, the family home in the gray, like, short dress with her legs and the aviators and the Gucci purse. Yeah. She's never looked hotter. No, see, I think her peak of hotness is probably the newsprint dress because it's also about the tan. It's also about the hair. And of course, the body's always there. Yeah, I think it's also just the mixture of this is the first season really that we see the full force of Pat Field and the success of the show and designers actively being like, we want our stuff on the show. Yeah. And also, you know, just Sarah Jessica Parker's je ne sais quoi. Yeah. So how would you, we don't even, we don't have a rating system. Should we have a rating system since we're going to keep doing these episodes? I mean, we might as well. But what's our rating system? Like Blonix? Okay, yeah, sure. How many Manolos do we give this episode? Is it like one out of ten? Yeah, yeah. I would give this episode... Seven? Seven or maybe eight. What would you say were the high points of the episode? Well, the high points are Natasha's monologue, the whole scene with the newsprint dress, the slow motion, all of that. Miranda's hangover is very funny. Her being drunk is funny. And Charlotte got that great dramatic scene with Trey on the tennis court. So maybe this is more like eight Blahniks? Yeah, let's give it seven and a half Blahniks. Okay. Or do we do half Blahniks? The half Blahnik is the Manolo (laughs) Blahnik that... uh... That Pete chews on in season four. Perfect. So it's seven Blahniks and one Pete-chewed Manolo Blahnik that Carrie got. (sighs) All right. Well, this was fun. Yeah. It did feel warm and fuzzy to go back to Sex and the City. It did feel like stepping into a warm bath. (laughs) (laughs) A warm bath drawn by Miss Bunny McDougal.
<laughs> sponge bathing me. <laughs> oh god, we have to do that episode. <laughs> Is that sex in the country? I think. I, I think forget. that's the overarching theme. Everyone's in the country. All right, this has been fun, but we have to go talk about things on the Patreon. Ooh. Ooh, we do, we do. But thank you guys for listening as always, and we'll be back next week. Yeah. All right, bye. Guys. bye. <laughs>